You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Dylan! Bird Pinkerton, my fearless producer. That's me. Um, do you want to go on a little journey through time and space? Always I do, Bird. Where are we going? Marin County, California. Paradise beyond the Golden Gate. Picture this tiny county. It's right next to San Francisco. I came to the place where the rainbow touches down. There are beautiful rocky seashores, rolling hills. Just over the Golden Gate, I brought my dreams. And I'm playing you parts of this NBC documentary because it came out right when our story starts. This is 1970s. And Marin County is full of great New Agey ideas. A woman can buy the services of two nude masseurs. They will bathe her, cradle her in a hot tub, massage her, and stroke her with peacock feathers. So yeah, that checks out with my understanding of 1970s Bay Area hippie culture. But Marin County is where the rich hippies lived. Marin County seems to have more of everything. More beauty, more leisure... More money. It's one of the 10 richest counties in the country, mostly white, mostly middle or upper class. Marin has more redwood hot tubs, possibly more liberal thinkers, and so we're told more cocaine snorters. But in the middle of this wealthy paradise, there was a woman named Beryl Buck. She had been living there for four decades, and she was very, very wealthy. Her family made money in oil, and her fortune was worth around $9 to $10 million. In 1975, when Beryl Buck died, she didn't have any heirs, but she did set up a trust with tens of thousands of oil stocks. And she wrote very specifically that the money shall always be held and used for exclusively nonprofit, charitable, religious, or educational purposes in providing care for the needy in Marin County, California, and for other nonprofit, charitable, religious, or educational purposes in that county. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. The money was for Marin. So all of the money in this trust, millions of dollars, can only be spent on people living in one of the richest counties in the country. Yes. It seems like the rough opposite of effective giving. And I feel like it gets at this one piece of the big philanthropy puzzle that I'm not sure that we've tackled yet this season. Zombie donors. Zombie donors? (laughs) Yeah, so people who put lots of money into charitable trusts when they die. And just to be 100% sure we're on the same page, charitable trust is where I have some money or some assets, I put them in a trust with a set of instructions, and I ask these trustees to carry out those instructions or something close to them. Which means that these donors get to say, hey, this is how I want my money to be spent for the rest of eternity. It's kind of like they're shaping the world according to their wishes, but from beyond the grave. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect, 
a show about trying to do good. I'm Dylan Matthews. And I'm Bird Pinkerton. Today on the show, zombie donors and their charitable trusts. We ask, is it okay that we let people influence the world long after they've left it? And to explore that question, Dylan, I have brought you a mix of stories about different donors. So we have our California widow, Beryl Bach, but also a Georgia senator and a pair of Texas movie theater moguls. Get excited. Um, And our guide through these stories is a professor at Boston College Law School. Her name is Ray Madoff. No connection to Bernie Madoff. Have you been wondering if I'm related? Well, you you pronounced it differently. You said Madoff. And then did you think that's like, that's Frankenstein? I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Ray spends a lot of her time with a different branch of the undead. She wrote a whole book about zombie donors and their charitable trusts. I have to admit, it is not quite as wild as young Frankenstein. It's pronounced Frankenstein. But her book is still pretty fun. She peppers it with all these examples to illustrate her big central point, which is forever is a very, very long time to have a trust. And when you think about it, it's bound to get into trouble because what people think is a good idea in one time might no longer be seen as a good idea, you know, 100 or 200 or 500 years later. One good example of that involves the Buck Trust, This is the Marin County Trust I was telling you about. Remember, when we left off, we were in a kooky, wealthy paradise. Therapy is a light industry here in Marin County. It includes Reichian therapy, postural integration, various kinds of mind control, S seminars. Beryl Buck had just died and left nine to ten million dollars with very clear instructions. She wanted it to benefit the needy of Marin County. Already in the 1970s, this was a little weird because Marin was super wealthy. But fine. There were some needy people in Marin County who could be helped with Barrel Buck's money. What she didn't predict was that after she died, that $9 million grew to be worth over $100 million. Actually, just a decade later, the trust was already worth $400 million dollars. Because the trust was all oil stocks from this one company, and then that company got purchased. So the value of each share multiplied. And so now we had this huge amount of money devoted to the needy of Marin County that essentially had very, very few needy people. The trustees had to figure out, like, what are we going to do with this unexpected fortune? And in the first 10 years, they put $150 million into kind of a blend of things. So there were hundreds of thousands of dollars that went into the symphony, into high school sports teams and a theater group. Then they ended up giving every high school senior with top grades some money. And then they funded bike paths, mobile animal shelters, and a study of French intensive gardening. That is wild. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. But what is actually kind of wilder is that the foundation that was in charge of this trust recognized that it was ridiculous. The San Francisco Foundation, which was the trustee of this money, said, you know, we want to use it for other counties around Marin where they really could use the money. 
There's this one foundation lawyer who's quoted in a newspaper article saying, The grants in Marin are so bloated as to be almost ludicrous. And the foundation ended up going to court. They made their case saying, Guys, we're the trustees. Circumstances have changed and there is so much more money here. The court refused to allow it. They said no. She wanted to benefit Marin County and that's where her money is going to stay. The Buck Trust is now worth upwards of $850 million. And there are counties right next to Marin that could really use that money. Right now on NBC Bay Area, a new turn in the fight over the Bay Area's housing crisis. Bay Area school districts are facing some tough decisions because of growing expenses and declining revenue. In Oakland, poverty, crime, and gang violence are persistent problems. Save our schools! Save our Homeless and pregnant. It's a vulnerable and growing population in the Bay Area. Still, the Buck Trust money can only be spent on Marin County. Nowadays, they do spend the money on education, health care, not so much French gardening. But we're talking about a place where the median household income is around $100,000 a year. Lovely Marin County, things are not as they appear. There's plenty going on beneath that eyeglass beneath. Okay, so I think I got it. There's no way that Beryl Buck could have known quite how much money her trust would wind up with. But that's exactly the point. We let people have these forever trusts when the far future is obviously unpredictable. Exactly. And so this is an example of the trust itself changing. But sometimes it's the world that changes around the trust. There was an interesting case in Georgia involving uh, Senator Bacon, who was very interested in providing this beautiful, beautiful park to his town, and he donated this land. This is 1911. Bacon sets up a trust, and Baconsfield Park opens in 1920. It is gorgeous. 75 acres of land, there are athletic fields, there are swing sets, a clay tennis court, a bamboo thicket. Um, I actually have an old postcard of it, if you want to look at that. Oh, wow. This is really nice. There's like, yeah, there's like this little island with a tree in it and flowers around the tree and like a little bridge made of earth that people can walk along. It's really lovely. Yeah. Apparently there were almost 600 rose bushes, which sounds really nice, too. This seems like a really nice gift for your community. When he made the gift, he said it was for the sole, perpetual, and unending use, benefit, enjoyment of white women, white girls, white boys, and white children of the city of Macon. Senator Bacon was a veteran of the Confederate Army. And like many people in the 1910s, he was an open racist. So he built his racism right into his trust. And throughout the first half of the 1900s, the park's trustees dutifully enforced that racism. Of course, 50 years later, racially segregated public parks were no longer either socially or legally accepted. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The question of what to do with Baconsfield Park ended up at the Supreme Court not once, but twice. First in 1966, and then in 1969. In the first case, the 1966 one, the question was, can Baconsfield Park be whites only? And the Supreme Court said, 
No. That violates the 14th Amendment. So the trustees of the park said, fine. If the park can't be whites only, then we can't follow the terms in Senator Bacon's will. So we want to give Baconsfield Park back to Bacon's heirs, and they can do whatever they want with it. Civil rights activists were like, hold on, what? No, let's not give the park back. The trust should just be changed to get rid of the racist part, which is why the park returned to the Supreme Court in 1969. Now, as my adversaries emphasize, Bacon quite plainly stated that he did not want Negroes to use this park. This is James Nebreth III, a civil rights attorney. And the second case also centers around a big 14th Amendment question, but they take a kind of interesting detour to talk about what Bacon would have wanted. We cheerfully concede that it violates Bacon's solemn intent for Negroes to use this park. But we also want it to be clear, Bacon's will provide that the land should be forever used and enjoyed as a park and pleasure ground. And he said that under no circumstances should it be sold or alienated. Nabert is saying, listen, in Bacon's vision for his park, he had two forever wishes. One, that it be for whites only, but the other, that it exist forever as a park. He never contemplated this situation. This will contains nothing to indicate that Bacon preferred that his park be destroyed and revert to his heirs rather than to have Negroes use it. So Nabert says, just cut the racist forever wish out of the will. We shouldn't be constrained by a dead man's racist ideas anyway. That our courts can't be used by dead men to perpetuate their bigotry in the law. Racism has to die with the bigot. The legal system can't give it perpetuity. But faced with these two incompatible forever wishes, the park and the racism, the Supreme Court ultimately said the trustees can decide that the racist wish is more important here. They said that the park could be taken away from the city. And so it was. The land went back to Senator Bacon's heirs. Who then sold it, and now you can see it's an office park. It's no longer a park. No more bamboo thickets, no more public rose bushes and tennis courts. Where the park once was, there is a Kroger's, an apartment complex, and a bunch of offices. And it's really a, a terrible thing to have happened. And it happened because of some peculiar idea that the thing that we should be doing is looking at what somebody who had died more than 50 years earlier would have wanted, even though the times had changed considerably. Okay, so I think I got this part of the zombie donor problem. People get really, really specific in their wills, even though the future is going to change a lot, and what they put in their wills isn't necessarily going to match the future. The future is maybe less racist than they are. But isn't there a pretty simple fix to that? We could just not have people be so specific. Or we could have a clause that says, if this will doesn't really make sense anymore, the trustees can change it. Yeah, so unfortunately, that is not enough. There is actually a pretty common loophole like that that already exists. Lawyers tend to have some catch-all language, like, you know, it's for this particular purpose, and then they add in, and for any other purpose that's considered charitable. 
something like that. Here's why this isn't a fix. When you say, the trustees of my trust can do whatever they want, you open yourself up to a whole different set of problems. Take the story of Mamie and Cecil Dews. They made a small fortune off of movie theaters in El Paso, Texas. They were just this quiet, married couple. They liked hanging out at home, watching TV. They seemed like very relatable rich people. (laughs) Exactly. And they set up this trust with a pretty noble goal, honestly, a foundation to benefit disabled children in El Paso. And they named their local bank or banker as trustee. And they count on that person to carry on their wishes. And they don't realize all the changes that are going to occur. By 1974, both Mamie and Cecil Dews have died. Their trust kicks into action. It's giving money to disabled kids like they wanted. But as time goes on, things shift in the world. The local bank that houses Mamie and Cecil Dew's trust is swallowed up by a bigger bank. And then that bank merges with another bank. And eventually, the trust is being handled by J.P. Morgan. And that's actually a really common story for small, long-lasting trusts. The trustees are no longer the local banker who understands the needs of the particular community, but instead is some somebody else often very far away. And these are what we call orphan trusts. Orphans because there's no one really to look after them. And remember, these poor orphan trusts have loophole language in them. Right. So they have that thing in the trust that says, sure, we're supposed to give this money to disabled children, but we can mostly do whatever we want as long as it counts as charitable. Yeah. And our definition of charitable is really, really broad. Trusts can spend as little as 5% of their value every year. And in some trusts, the trustees spend that money on trustee salaries or administrative costs, and that's basically it. So none of that money has gone to charity. Also, big banks will often grow the trusts so they can slap bigger fees on them. That means there's more money in the trust, but it's just sitting in the bank. Is that what happened with Mamie and Cecil Deuce's trust when J.P. Morgan got it? Yeah, so their trust grew, which means there was more money to give away, but J.P. Morgan was giving away less of it. So even though this nice TV-watching couple was like, we want to help disabled kids in El Paso forever, instead a lot of their money might just wind up making some bankers rich. And I just want to be clear that it's not just this one orphan trust from El Paso. Uh, The New York Times looked into this back in 2007, and they found almost 4,000 trusts in big banks across the country with a total of $5.4 billion. And so we have a tremendous accumulation of wealth that is not being spent for the public good. And I think that's deeply troubling. Okay, so let me summarize what we've heard so far. Yes, please. So one problem with these forever trusts is that you have these zombie donors micromanaging things from beyond the grave. You have your Barrel Bucks in Marin County or your Senator Bacons in Macon, Georgia. And the way they wanted to spend the money doesn't make sense anymore. Right. But you can't really fix that by just making things less specific. Because then you get these orphan trusts, where you have a group of trustees just doing whatever they want with the money, including sitting on billions of dollars forever. Also correct. 
So why do we let people do any of this? Why do we have zombie donors and forever trusts? Ray actually has a really interesting answer to this. And I will give it to you, Dylan, after the break. Welcome back to Future Perfect. So, Bird, you promised me an explanation for why we let people have trusts that last forever. Yes. So the first thing that I learned from Ray is that it hasn't always been this way. Historically, right, we did not allow people to create their own donor intent preserved in perpetuity, right? We explicitly did not allow that for the first century after, uh, you know, the, the country was formed. It was seen as something that was aristocratic. It was not the American way. We'd literally just fought an entire war to establish democracy. These zombie entities that could live forever were seen as very disconcerting and not necessarily appropriate for a country that was supposed to represent the wishes of the people. And that's why Thomas Jefferson famously said, the world is held in usufruct for the living. And usufruct is a funny word, but what it means is life estate, that the world is to be held for the living for the time of their lives. And after that, it is to be freed up for the next generation to hold the world as they see fit. And that was a very strong value of Jefferson and of a lot of the founders. The idea of people in their time controlling the resources of their time for their time. The other thing that we have to realize when we go back to our founding days, right, the early days of this country, is that the measuring life of things was the life of man. We live in a very different time now because we have not just charities that we are used to thinking of as existing in perpetuity, but we also have corporations which now exist in perpetuity. That wasn't the case back then. You know, I can still remember the very first sweets given to me by my grandfather. They were Werther's original, and I was poor. If you want a car from a company that's been building them for 115 years, you're going to want a Ford. This is the Pepsi that your father drank. And his father drank before he met your grandmother. This is the Pepsi for every generation. That was another creature of the 20th century was the idea that you could create a artificial entity like the corporation that would exist forever beyond the life of man. So is that when all the stuff around zombie donors and forever trusts also started to change when we had forever corporations too? Yes, exactly. It was actually right around a time that we're pretty familiar with on this show, the first Gilded Age, or like just after it. This perpetual thing came about in the early part of the 20th century, and it was really a confluence of two events. One, there was a growth of something the country had never seen before, which was the super wealthy. These are our old pals, Carnegie and Rockefeller and Stanford and Mellon. Who had assets in the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. At the same time, we also had a big shift in what the population looked like. So we had huge influx of immigrants and the growth of cities and a lot of problems with poverty and social needs. So you have super wealthy people and super needy people 
And the wealthy people, like Rockefeller, say, hey, we might be willing to give some of our money to these needy people. We just want to do it in trusts that last forever. One reason is that the amount of their wealth was massive. And the idea of actually spending the principal probably seemed tremendously difficult to do. Remember, this is like mind-boggling, unprecedented wealth that we're talking about. And the charitable infrastructure that we have today did not exist. So it was legitimately hard to spend all of it. But also, if I remember our first episode correctly, these guys were pretty big on the idea that we're the fittest and we know what's best for the world. So I can see them feeling like they also knew what was best for the future. It also is very important that it had an association with their names that would make their names be forever associated with these good deeds. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. A forever trust means your name lasts forever. So whether or not it was American or democratic to set up forever trusts... That was the offer that was being made on a kind of take-it-or-leave-it basis. So since then, forever trusts haven't just become more popular. They've basically become the default. There's this one survey of foundations that found that over 90% of trusts have been set up to last forever. But that's starting to change, right? Like, the Gates Foundation has said that 20 years after Bill and Melinda Gates die, they're going to shut down. They're going to have to spend all of their money by then. And it seems like a bunch of other foundations are starting to do that, too. Yeah, and that is the kind of thing that Ray Madoff would really like to see a lot more of. We encourage people to set aside their money and their dreams in perpetuity, and we give them this vision. You, You will be remembered forever for all of these good things that you wanted done. But that's not really the case. And I think I would be more comfortable if we were more honest with people that it's not going to be forever. Maybe it'll be a hundred years. And that those types of trusts are much more likely to actually carry out their wishes. So I think I'm sold on this idea that we should reconsider our current system of defaulting to trusts that last forever. But there's something I've heard several times throughout this episode that I'm not sure we fully addressed. Okay, go for it. Some of these people are spending their money in really questionable ways. Like, go back to that first couple of examples from Ray. Yeah. You had a woman who gave millions of dollars to an already super wealthy county. I've been to Marin County. That's nuts. (laughs) And then a man who gave away a park that only white people could use. Over time, those trusts changed, and that was a problem— But the first one wasn't great in the short term, and the second one was just terrible always. When people make charitable bequests, either during their life or at death, we tend to think of it as something that they're doing with their own money. But what we don't often explicitly realize is that when somebody makes a bequest that's termed charitable in nature, that gift is effectively matched by American taxpayers because the donors get significant tax benefits for making these uh, transfers of property. And Bird, we've seen this before on this season. With charity, we're just subsidizing whatever it is some rich person wants to support. They want to support dogs. There's been uh, trust to preserve the Huey aircraft. There's no distinction made between eradicating polio 
and eradicating itchy toes for uh, penguins. They're all treated the exact same. So this is something we shouldn't forget, I think, in this whole conversation about zombie trusts and the hand of death reaching from beyond the grave. Yeah, I hear you. Like, that is definitely a problem, something we should think about fixing. But we should also never lose sight of the fact that when donors give money to their pet causes, we all pony up too. And in a democracy, that's a problem all by itself. Future Perfect is produced and co-reported by Bert Pinkerton. That's you. That's me. Our wonderful, wonderful editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. And we are mixed by the excellent Jared Paul. We were fact-checked by Laura Bullard. And we have music in this episode by APM, Chris Sabriskie, and Blue Dot Sessions. Many thanks to Ben Soskis for all his help researching the episode. Yeah, really. He put us in touch with Ray and is a true gem. Uh, also, gems are our voice actors, Alex Ward and Bridget McCarthy. Our excerpts from the Supreme Court's public sessions were provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia, and by the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of Dylan's reporting and others' ineffective altruism, where should they go? They should check out vox.com slash future perfect. Okay, we did it. <laughs> <laughs>